0: Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Joanne Lyon, General Superintendent Emerita of the Wesleyan Church. The topic, Leading Well. Today's conversation is brought to you by Christian Community Credit Union, where faith and finances come together. Have you been financially impacted by COVID-19? Christian Community Credit Union is offering financial relief programs for members. Visit mycccu.com slash NAE to learn more. That's mycccu.com slash NAE. Each account is insured up to $250,000. By member's choice, this institution is not federally insured. Visit mycccu.com slash NAE. And now,
1: let's join in. Greetings. I'm Walter Kim, here with Joanne Lyon. Joanne is General Superintendent Emerita and Ambassador of the Wesleyan Church, after having served as General Superintendent from 2008 to 2016. Prior to leading the Wesleyan Church, she was founder and CEO of the relief and development organization World Hope. For several years, she has been an adjunct professor of church and society at Indiana Wesleyan University and Asbury Theological Seminary. Joanne has also served over 30 years in pastoral ministry. She holds a master's degree in counseling and further graduate studies in historical theology. She has been on the NAE executive committee for almost a decade, and is currently the vice chair of our board I'm grateful that the NAE has connected us, Joanne, and grateful that you are joining us today.
2: Thank you, Walters. Great to be with you and great to be with our audience today.
1: All right. Having just uh, read that bio, I have to say you have done a lot. Your bio sounds like a bio of three or four people leading a denomination, founding an international nonprofit and leading it for over 10 years, pastoral ministry for over 30 years, and your involvement in higher education. How do you fit
2: it all in? Well, obviously, well, first of all, if you put all that together, it has to be about a hundred years old. So I'm not (laughs) quite that old yet. Uh, But um, part of it is of course, doing a few things at the same time. Um, So for example, when I was doing adjunct work at Asbury Seminary in Indiana Westland, that was also during the time that I was pastoring um, along with my husband in those days. Uh, Then when I started World Hope, that took everything, uh, and that was focused, and then leading the denomination was focused also. So some were multitasking, and then others were total focused, so it's rather interesting to see how all that works together.
1: So you raised the issue of multitasking and being in multiple roles at the same time. What what did you learn uh, about being in multiple leadership roles at the same time?
2: One of the things that I always tried to do was draw in a sense, like draw a string. What connects all this? Why am I doing this? What is the connection? It isn't like, here's a compartment, here's a compartment, here's a compartment, but how do they mesh together? And what am I learning from one that um, adds strength and wisdom to the other? So it is, it is a, 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 collaboration, a circle of all things in the circle together rather than walls dividing them.
1: Hmm. That's helpful to learn. Um, were there specific leadership lessons from your experience that jump out to you or maybe from scripture that's uh, particularly important for today's leaders?
2: Well, I think, yes, <clears throat> so much for today. First of all, I think we have to see ourselves a, a loving God who has called us to a broken world to make new. And uh, when you kind of take it from that viewpoint at the top, and then you begin to look through scripture, certainly. And through the old Testament, we see so much of God constantly saying, be of courage, courage, courage. It takes courage to move through uh, the parts of the broken world that we are in and to see the process of God making things new. And of course we know through the New Testament that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit that happens. So I think as far as, uh, and then certainly the Proverbs and, you know, uh, in all your ways, acknowledge the Lord and he'll direct your paths and listening to God in this process through scripture and through meditation and through solitude and, and certainly through prayer. Uh, But at the same time, it still takes courage to do this. Uh, So I think it's courage and risk at the same time. I don't mean being risky, but courage and risk. Uh, And every time, Walter, that I've moved in these areas, I have found God opens the door even far more than I even anticipated.
1: Sometimes leaders are going to be asked uh, to apply that courage and risk in a very specific way. And as I understand it as general superintendent, you are given the task with leading the restructuring of your denomination. Tell us a little bit more about that. How, how did you go about tackling such a large task?
2: Well, that was an interesting task for sure. And one of the things, uh, when I was first elected, we had uh, three general superintendents, there was two other and myself. And as we began to look at, just finally you have to face the hard facts. Are, are we doing what we've been called to do? So the first thing that we realized was that when we got the data, 50% of our churches had had no baptisms, or you could say 50% had had baptisms, but 50% with no baptisms. And my first question was, which sounds rather secular, but my first question was, my, my, what kind of business are we in anyway? You know? And uh, so uh, we began to take a look at that and realize, wait a minute, what what's out there? What's What do we need to to restructure? What do we need to, to re-energize? What do we need to reevaluate? I guess all the words that start with read started that. and then we determined how are we going? What's the best way to do this? Now we could have sat in that little room and dreamed up a lot, but I was called back to scripture and the new Testament that when the Holy spirit fills people and the spirit of God is in people, God is speaking through them. So let's go, let's go to the people and see what God is saying to them. Um, and so we did. we did listening groups uh, all over the country, thousands of people, we, but we put them in groups of like twenty five or thirty, so we could really hear, and we had the same question: What are your hopes? What are your great hopes for the Wesleyan Church? We started with that because people have got to start with hope, not to tear something up, but what, what are their hopes? And then we began to look at all the other questions, what needs to be reimagined, what needs to be refigured, up, and how is it measured, et cetera. I did that, and this was what was so amazing. Walter, at the end of our that took us a little over a year to do that, and then and all that needs to be done. Actually, by the time I finished the last one, I really knew what the people were going to say. You could sense the same themes moving through it, and that's where I sensed the spirit of God moving through this. And then from that, then we, of course, did a white paper. We we grabbed what the themes were. We had, of course, people working with us, going through all the data, what are the themes, then how do we put this in? How do we then put a, a white paper? How do we look at a restructuring and all that? And that's how that came. So I guess many times people say, well, I'm, send, send your leader to the mountain and get the vision and come down and tell us. Well, that's what happened with Moses, but that's what, not what happens in the New Testament. And uh, so I think following that model of what is God saying to the people, to his people. And, and it, was, um, it was amazing to me, actually to see that those themes from California to New York, same, similar themes. And these are people who never talked to each other, had no idea who each other was. Uh, it, was it was very, very interesting. So then from there, we moved through the restructuring uh, process. And restructuring is not easy because people, when you restructure, when change brings loss, how do you deal with loss in this? Uh, and so one of the things we kept looking at That People, this has been an old tradition or this has been this or this has been this. How do we make that change? Well, you have loss, but you replace something with that in some other way that helps people not to feel the pain of that loss so much. I learned a lot during that particular time about how you reframe, how uh, you, uh, and and listen and be careful, not, you know, these are things people have hung on to for a long time. It's part of their identity. Then don't put them down. This is how we we value them and we value who they are. So I think God helped us in some amazing ways to get through this. And one of the things was that the church then wanted to vote to have only one general superintendent rather than three. And that was difficult as well for many people, but we moved through that. And again, by listening and by caring and then being courageous and risk, we moved forward. And I, I was elected as the one. Um, and so that was, an um, interesting piece in itself, but God helped all the way through. So when I finished up, when, after the eight years, I felt like it was, I'd done what I should do in our tradition. You can stay on forever. Uh, and, um, if you get elected each four years, that is. And, um, so, but I felt at the end of that eight years, this is what I'd been called to do. This is what I'm here for. And it was over. So then we had some leaders on the, in, come to me and say, oh, you didn't pray enough. You need to go back and pray. Oh, my word, don't they trust me, you know? And I said, well, okay, I'll go back and pray, but I'm pretty sure I've heard right. And I came back, and yes, I felt I'd heard right. <laughs> and that's when and they said, well, we want to change, and can we just have you do four more years as an ambassador? And uh, so that means you'll represent us out in various capacities and places. So that's what I've done, and I finished that up actually uh, this year, and it's been wonderful, and I'm very grateful. And I told him, you know, this has been wonderful, but you don't need to do this another four years. I've, I've done this; this is great. I mean, <laughs> frankly, I didn't want them to think, oh my goodness, now we have to pay her till she dies, you know. So <laughs> 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 but I, but I um, feel like I've done that ambassador piece as well, and it's been wonderful. And several of the things that I've done, I'll continue. Like for example, with NAE, I'll continue with some of the things I've done. But, um, and, but many of the places, things I did in these four years, I'm getting people to take my place in those. So this is how you build leadership to follow, not it's just one person does it all kind of thing. So I've been really pleased with the leadership that's followed. And, and um, the general superintendent that followed is someone I've known since, uh, oh, goodness, 45 years, I guess. And uh, so, and it was part of his mentoring and coming up. So anyway, those are, uh, those are the joys. Of leadership, when we can really see we're leading, but we, it isn't just about us, it's about how we lead others to be able to become leaders and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you have just given us so many amazing principles about tackling difficult and challenging circumstances. Our listeners, in a variety of circumstances, whether they're in local churches or nonprofit organizations, or even thinking in terms of a small group that needs a change. I mean. The principles mm-hmm. of defining clearly, of listening carefully, of helping people work through loss, of trust in the Lord, of courage, uh, and allowing things over time. These are these are really fantastic lessons um, that could apply in all sorts of directions. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, there's. A you know, opportunity- one of the
2: things. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, please go ahead. Well, I just was going to say one of the things that I see that happens over time, where leaders don't want to give up their spots. And and I I, there's a couple of things. I think that um, people if we aren't careful, people will write the script for us and we start living that script Uh, and they, you know, uh, give, uh, you know, accolades and all this kind of thing. And, And I'm not saying we don't need those along the way, but if we aren't careful, those accolades take over and and define our power that we begin to enjoy our power more than what the ministry is more than what God has called us to do. And we live out the script that they keep writing for us. And I've seen this over and over when people keep living out that script. Finally, there's that crash and burn that takes place.
1: Mm. Wow. There's lessons there, not only of leadership, but leadership transition.
2: Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So
1: you, you, you've served obviously within the denomination and a local church context. Um, and we've alluded to the non-governmental organization work that you've uh, mm-hmm. done as well with World Hope, uh, specifically in uh, crisis. Uh, and, and I want to have you kind of tie those things together. What, what is the role between crisis relief and the church? whether it's in situations that are recurring like human trafficking or hunger and poverty mm-hmm. or situations that are unique like Ebola or COVID-19. What's the relationship between crisis relief and the church?
2: Well, the church obviously must, historically has always been involved in, in this. there's no, it's seamless between how, what, where, God, where God has called his church to be as far as the in the world is concerned as far as the pain and suffering and justice issues and so forth and it all it all integrates with uh, evangelism as well uh, i don't mean that it's transactional that we give somebody a bag of food and then you have to be a christian i don't mean that at all but i mean it's that it's the power of the spirit that just moves uh and um and then i come from the wesleyan tradition which of course john wesley was one of the greatest examples of uh, of of the integration of of uh, justice and righteousness uh, together. I mean, I, I love that passage in Amos. Let justice roll down like a river, and righteousness is a never-failing stream. And righteousness and holiness. If you just have that, then you're you're isolated, and you start being very inward. And many times, on justice, you just look at that. Well, then it just becomes something political, and it doesn't. It isn't transformational. It's only transactional. So I think we're talking about the transformation piece. So I started World Hope uh, with in mind with in partnership with the Westland church at that particular time, the Wesleyan church, which had been in Sierra Leone, West Africa for many, many, many years since the late 1800s. Sierra Leone was involved in a 14 year, but well, ended up to be a 14 year uh, civil war. And uh, so missionaries had been evacuated out of course. And so at that time it was during those days and or, or if you, uh, during, during that particular time that I just felt God's call and the church, if, confirmed, affirmed it uh, to start World Hope in some way. I started in a bedroom in a parsonage <laughs> right out of St. Louis. And um, just, it was one of those things that you just finally, I, that's when I dropped everything and said, okay, God's called me to do this. One little funny story in this is that uh, we had four kids and two had finished college and two were at Houghton college actually. Mm-hmm. And I quit everything where I was making some money in the church and uh, started this. And I remember one day my husband said, I believe God's called, called you to do this. He called from his office over to the house, and he said, um, but, but, you know, when do you get your last paycheck from the last place? You know, because <laughs> um, I've got some bills to pay. And I said, well, January 20th is when I get my last paycheck. On January 21st, um, I had lunch with a man that I was not sure he even really cared about poor people or anything else. Uh, but I knew, I just felt that I needed, and he, he had re- resources. And um, God had already confirmed in a lot of ways, but that day I had lunch with him and uh, I told him what the vision was, what we were doing. And he said, how much is it going to cost you to do this? And I had a budget in my purse. I mean, I'd set up that budget because I'd done these kinds of things before in past life. And um, I pulled out that budget, handed it to him. And God just came in that restaurant and he tears started rolling down his cheeks and he said, okay, I'll pick up the whole thing. And so he picked up the whole first year Um, so talk about a miracle the whole first year uh, operating costs and uh, it was that then it it was able to catapult us in and so I could get many stories but that was in a sense the beginning of it now it's grown and all kinds of things but it took talk about courage and risk it was courage and risk but a call that I sensed God doing and other people had confirmed it so the Westland Church read I mean they worked right along with me and and we incorporated separately not uh, from the church but uh, but uh, as typical I, they said well, we want you to do this we need you to do this but we don't have any money to give you you know <laughs> and i thought yeah well i know i didn't even expect any but god was was added and of course now the, the, the local churches and so forth have helped in many many ways since then but the church just didn't have initial funds to start it but in a sense i think that's okay i know that's okay god wanted to show his himself in other ways
1: there's a certain theme that seems to be recurring in our conversation, that of courage and the ability to trust the Lord, um, and mm-hmm. that's very inspiring. Uh, so World Hope, it, it's taking you internationally, um, and you've mentioned Sierra Leone as being a, a place of um, deep importance mm-hmm. to you, at least as you were starting out the work. Um. Given mm-hmm. your international connections, um, are there particular countries or issues that right now are consuming your prayers and energies?
2: Yes. Well, actually, I might add that in that. Then that was in nineteen ninety six when I started World Open. In the year two thousand, we moved to Washington, and uh, so then became that's where it really m- bumped up to a lot of different levels, and that's when the faith based offices started under George Bush and. Human Trafficking Office was started during the State Department during that. So it became very involved in all of these kinds of things. But yes, right now, actually, I was on a call uh, last uh, Friday with uh, Dr. Ai, who's the uh, head of, director of the Africa Evangelical Alliance. Uh, And I found it interesting as he talked about the virus in Africa. Uh, It is in the South and it is in the North. And uh, we're involved in West Africa and uh, uh, primarily in West Africa. Uh, And one of the thing and the virus is there. I mean, they've locked down Liberia for 60 days now. But this is the thing he said. He said the real thing that we need in Africa right now is water. Because he he said we cannot wash our hands in sand. We cannot wash our hands in the dirty river. We need clean water to wash our hands. Uh, And and we have done wells, and we're doing water wells. But one of the things we found are there are a lot of old wells around that need to be rehabbed. So if we can just begin to rehab those wells, uh, people can begin to use some clean water right now without waiting for a drilling, but to get some clean water to wash their hands. I, I was stunned by that, Walter, actually. I mean, I, I was thinking of bigger pieces, and I know the poverty issues. The virus is not is not real strong there, but it's happening. Uh, and I thought, interesting, just simple. Right now, water is the big need. And, of course, water saves lives, as you well know anyway, the clean water, et cetera. But but this is in a different level with this was fascinating to me on that. In Cambodia, we work there, and um, right now there are cases there. uh, And our staff is out doing a lot of education in the rural areas because there is literally no health care facilities out there at all. And so working desperately with folks there and training them on what to do, and they're responding very well. So it's really in the prevention side. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're pointing out some of the most basic human
1: needs, um, the need for water yeah, and uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. basic healthcare. Uh, clearly mm. there are areas of international uh, crisis that you've been engaged with, but you've also uh, led during periods of crisis, not just places of crisis. And I know that you've provided wise and and carrying guidance to churches as they were undergoing uh, a crisis. Um, You were helpful to Willow Creek uh, during their Mm -hmm. um, institutional crisis. What advice would you give to leaders during periods of institutional crisis?
2: Well, the interesting thing, I think um, if you're talking about leaders in the church or talking about pastors maybe clarify that question a little bit more yeah first let's
1: let's uh let's talk about pastors first Mm -hmm.
2: crisis within the church
1: yes that they're Uh, leading through is that right what what, that's right what advice would you give to to pastors Mm -hmm. uh as they lead churches during periods of institutional crisis
2: well i think one of the things is uh if we aren't careful we try to um Uh, to avoid, Uh, avoid the crisis, avoid. And many times the crisis, always the crisis enlarges when we try to avoid. So I've seen pastors who, who will avoid it. Well, it's, it's happening, but I'm not going to listen to it because if I avoid it, it will finally go away. Um, And, uh, and then it only rises up and rises up and rises up. Then the second, I'm saying this kind of on the, what not to do type the second thing is then being defensive well i didn't have anything to do with it or if i did it's not my fault uh and so then we become very defend they become very defensive with it uh, and so then that only increases it just it, it just becomes totally out of control and uh increases one of the f- things i think first is to as the crisis is there is to be is to face it face the crisis try to look at the facts without your own personal emotion involved and that's difficult but you finally have to look at the facts as they are as as people see those facts Uh, and if you can be very um, non-involved emotionally look at the facts that these folks are saying the facts that these folks are saying and then how do we begin to bring these groups these these groups together in some way to hear each other uh and, uh, and I, I, I've really seen some churches not split if some, if there can be a media, if you can do mediation in that way, sometimes you have to bring a mediator in of another person that is not, is not involved. But if there's not that opportunity, if a pastor can learn some mediation skills and how, how people can listen to each other and not judge and finally come out to a, to an agreement, uh, I, I, I've seen it work. I mean, I've, I've, I've experienced it and have seen it work, but it takes, it really takes uh, hard work uh, and it takes holding your own emotions someplace and you need someplace else that you can just, you know, say what you feel like, <laughs> um, but, but not in that. And then uh, and, 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 and try to get counsel outside of uh, any side of this try to get the council that, that can listen objectively.
1: You clearly work in areas that uh, have crisis and issues that have crisis um, and help institutions, churches, nonprofit institutions, navigate difficult issues. Um, immigration is a difficult issue. Uh, right now you serve on yes. the leadership team for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Why is the church's mm-hmm. voice so critical to helping our nation foster uh, a welcoming and hospitable spirit toward immigrants and refugees?
2: Well, I think uh, we don't have a choice, really, Walter. The scriptures compel us to welcome the stranger and, uh, and you know, the big four, the, the, the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor uh, in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And Jesus repeats it again in the New Testament. Uh, so uh, I think, number one, we're being obedient uh, to what we've been called. And then it is a witness that this is, um, this is uh, we're being Jesus in this world in this day. Uh, and so, and this, these are the poor and suffering in some unusual circumstances. I was at the border the first week in April, actually about a week, year ago last week. Um, and I was in, in the El Paso Juarez border. And to sit there, and a group of us went down just to listen. Who who are these people that are coming across? What are their stories? What are they saying? Uh, And to listen uh, to the stories and the pain and suffering that people, all of us here in the United States, we would leave to find something else if we needed to get our families out of these dire circumstances. Uh, it's It's human nature to be able to do this. And this is where the Lord says he welcomes us. Uh, and it was a fascinating thing on that, too. I was in uh, a, a place at uh, one of the churches that was taking care of 60 to 70 migrants who were finally released from detention camps uh, in there. And as we walked into this place that day, uh, and th- the studies have been that large percentage of the folks coming over the border are Christians. And um, I'll never forget, we walked in there and they were frazzled and the women, they were laying on cots and the children were crying and the men just the emptiness in their eyes. And so the pastor then introduced and said, we were there to help them that day and said, I want you to meet all these pastors. I mean, the children rushed up and grabbed us by the legs and hugged us. And the light came in their eyes and the people started saying, Oh, Oh, it's so wonderful. We haven't seen a pastor for months. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew then these were people of God. These are our brothers and sisters. You're going to make me cry. while I'm saying this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was such an emotional moment for me. And, and that's in a way, that's why I even became more uh, connected that, yes, we are to welcome the strangers. Uh, and, 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 and even, even, I don't even say more so, but in a sense, even these were our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, uh, how we needed to be with him. So yes. And we, we are working diligently. I'm so grateful for the, the table, um, that the, all the representatives uh, from various denominations and institutions in the evangelical world that are on this table, that we are working very much on uh, so many issues with this and trying to get policy to come along, to work with, uh, that is, uh, that, that aligns with what we're trying to do in scripture uh, and follow what the scriptural teaching in this.
1: Thank you for that work. I mean, clearly, it's a work uh, of deep compassion for you, and I appreciate that. You know, you've been a trailblazer in many ways. Uh, You were the first uh, woman uh, elected as general superintendent of your denomination. And as a leader who is a woman, you've had lots of experiences in church, business, education, governmental settings. What are some lessons that you have learned uh, about men and women working together? And in particular, um, the challenges that women might face uh, in emerging leadership roles.
2: Well, thank you. Yes, uh, I was the first woman to be elected uh, general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. But I might add, it took 150 years. Uh, Mm. (laughs) We ordained the first woman to be ordained in the United States in 1853. Uh, Antoinette Brown was ordained by the founder of the Wesleyan Methodist Church, Luther Lee. But, so, I think part of it is it, it just takes time, and it is and I think that as we struggled as women have moved along in leadership in the church one of the one of the barriers has been uh, that uh, you know people will accept women as pastors and teachers and whatever but but when it comes to that kind of power and authority role, there's been a bit of resistance to that uh, and i don't think it's been i don't think it's been uh, 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 you know, intentional, I think it's just kind of in our gut kind of thing. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, those doors opened and, and I've walked in those doors I really, uh, Walter, I've never sought to be like a, a glass ceiling breaker person. I, I just, uh, I know people do and that's okay, but I just was, whatever door got opened, I would just w- would walk in that. Uh, but I think a couple of things. Early on, way back, I would be invited to be on certain boards or certain committees or something. And I remember I would be the only woman there. And I remember someone said to me, oh, you're just being a token. You know what? I said, well, okay, if I'm a token, I'm a token. I'm just going to express what, how I see and how I see the world and how, it all, and how to, but I can contribute to it. Um, and I think in a sense, uh, those are things that many women have said, well, I'm not going to be just a token well you have something to bring but don't think of yourself as a token think of yourself as i have something to bring and i'm there and in those places is where i became really good friends with men leaders and valued them and we began to value each other in ways in which we could work together so i think that's one principle that needs to be uh continued to be looked at we have issues today and i've written about it on men and women working together and, and whether a woman should ride in the car with a man and all those kinds of things and I've written about the, um, uh, the uh, visible rules and the invisible rules. Uh, and we've done these visible rules. But really, where I've seen men and women fail is in the invisible rules. Um, and the invisible rules are where do you go with your conversation. And I think, in fact, one of them that I see is an invisible rule is Uh, when suddenly your, your time working together gets beyond being a collegial, uh, collegial um, uh, relationship. And it moves into particularly starting talking about your marriages and it moves in from a collegial relationship to a counseling relationship. And that's where I've seen trouble happen. Uh, If, because when you're collegial you're working you're talking about your work you're talking about what you're doing if you need counseling for your marriage or whatever you're going through don't do that with your colleague do that with your therapist do that with someone else that's where the breakdown comes and then that's where the power issues come uh the power differentials start in in that piece as well there's a lot more i could say about that but uh, i think those are pieces that I've seen, uh, and then I've seen those that have followed the rules, don't ride in the car, don't da da da, and still fail because they've moved those relationships to that place.
1: Wow, that is um, really helpful advice. You you alluded to this earlier uh, in our conversation uh, of passing on leadership, giving up position, and so at the height of your own leadership, you could have continued as the head of your denomination, uh, and yet you were determined to let that go, to develop um, the future generation. What advice uh, would you give to other leaders about giving up their position of influence when the time
2: is right? Well, I think, I think there's a certain sense that you know. Uh, in fact, when I came in as a general superintendent, I had what I referred to as big rocks. These are big rocks we gotta work on. <laughs> and uh, one day as i was sitting and going through and reviewing everything i thought "Hmm, we've worked through all the big rocks um and um uh and and yet i felt it had put the path the church on the path for the future the big rocks route and the future and they could build then on what uh we had created for the future um and so i think there's that sense that you have to know uh, now there's another future here and there can be another leader to lead this into this next future. Um, I, I I wish I could be more, um, more specific on this, but uh, it has to do. And then I think the other thing is how much of your personhood is wrapped up in your position. And, um, if it is, then that's hard to move on. Hmm. Your personhood, your identity—how much of your identity is wrapped up in that position? Hmm. Uh, then, then that becomes, then, then, that, then it's difficult. So you have to really, have to really be able to separate that out and look at at, at who you are and your and your identity. Never can be in your position. Your identity, obviously, we know our identity is in Christ, but that's hard. <laughs> it's really hard to just keep saying, you know, you say it, but what is it? Uh, and, so, um, and and so you realize there's, uh, there, there are probably other things you, that God's calling you to do and, and be a part. And it and your identity is not wrapped in that.
1: You have given us much to think about today. I'm so grateful for that. Our guest on today's conversation has been Joanne Lyon, General Superintendent Emerita of the Westleyan Church. I'm Walter Kim. And on behalf of us all, a very special thanks to Joanne.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.